All right, Jesse, last week's spousal serial killer still has me fully enraged. What's the story this time around? A down-on-her-luck alcoholic IHOP employee gets too involved in her boss's toxic relationship, and the outcome is not one, but two horrible homicides. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about plans gone poorly, unexpected accomplices, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting this show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurder. There you will see all the different tiers that you can sign up for. It's a monthly membership. It's super fun, really low commitment. You can join for as low as $3, as high as 50 right, Jess? Yeah, that's our ultra premium platinum. package. <laughs> yeah, platinum package. And you can learn all about that. And let us know if you have any questions too. You can always DM us or message us on Facebook. Yes, yeah, so we are also doing our watch party tonight when this mm-hmm. episode comes out. We decided to switch gears a little bit because I wanted to freak Andy out. I noticed that the first episode of the new season of American Horror Stories was called The Dollhouse. And Andy hates, 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 hates creepy dolls. So I thought, why not make that our watch party? <laughs> Do you want to explain the watch party a little bit, actually, for people yes. who maybe don't know? So the watch party is on one of our tiers. You can find out which one if you go to the Patreon page. And it's where we kind of hop on a Zoom. We usually chat for like 10 or 15 minutes, get to know everybody who's there. And we talk about what we're about to watch. And then we close down our cameras and we just move to chat. And we just chat with each other throughout the episode or the movie, depending on what we choose every month. It's been so cool getting to know all of the listeners on a more personal level through the watch party too. Yes, absolutely. And that's the best part of it. We love getting to meet all of you guys. And so that's fun. It's just like hanging out with us and watching a movie or an episode of something. So that's that. And speaking of Patreon, we are so excited as always to welcome and shout out a new set of awesome patrons. Abby H, Jennifer A, and Kate M. Megan M, Dixie B, and Maggie L, Leah P, Taylor B, and Maritza M, Casey S, Amberlyn R, and Kara Y, Carrie R, Court J, and Alana N, and finally, Elizabeth R. Elizabeth got a real big shout out right there. <laughs> Lots of enthusiasm. Jesse, you need to warn me if IHOP is ever in the lead of our story, because that really threw me <laughs> for a loop. <laughs> you know, the IHOP is a very important place in this story. It's a very important setting for a bizarre double homicide. Yes, I'd imagine so. I think, honestly, the less I tell you in the lead up, the better. I think we should just jump right in. Definitely. 
It was a warm, lush April day in South Florida in 1984, and Richard Higgins was busy clearing the five-acre property he had just purchased three weeks earlier. Richard was a corporate landscaper, responsible for beautifying fast food chains and office buildings across the state. He needed a nice-sized plot of land to grow the plants that would become the stars of his landscaping show. He had found it and then some in the Redlands property that he got for a steal. Really, the price seemed a little too good to be true. His girlfriend, Sandra, seemed to think that there was a ghostly presence in the house, but Richard didn't really believe in that kind of thing. Yeah. He wiped some sweat from his brow and kept cutting trees from the wild woods when he saw two men wearing suits and ties crossing his property. They flashed their badges and identified themselves as Miami-Dade homicide detectives. Homicide, said Richard. His head started to spin. The detectives asked him who he had purchased the property from. Why, Arthur Venetia, the former owner. He had a sinking feeling that something was about to go very wrong when the police flashed a photo of Arthur Venetia. And Richard had to say, wait, no, that's not Arthur Venetia. I mean, he's got to be at least 15 years younger. Well, his knees went a little weak and he had to sit down after the cops confirmed that the man in the picture was most certainly Arthur Venetia. So at that point, they asked if any of the grounds looked like it had been disturbed, as if something might have been buried there recently. Oh, my God. Yep. He said, you know, there's so much work to be done on this property that I didn't even really think about it. But there's this spot in the southwest corner of the front yard that does look like earth has been disturbed there recently. After giving the police permission to dig, a backhoe was called in and it got right to work. In less than five hours, not one, but two human bodies were discovered. Richard felt like he was having an out-of-body experience. Soon, news station helicopters whirred above his new home. The police were all over it. There's all the crime scene people. And he was left wondering. Who was the real Arthur Venetia? And the young man pretending to be him. Also, the strange thin woman who accompanied the pretender. And oh man, how had he been so dumb to overlook the red flags in favor of a truly discounted property? Murder had not been on the real estate listing. No, it's usually not. They usually leave that out. They usually hide that. Well, these were all very good questions, ones that Richard and all of Florida would discover very shortly, as well as the seedy, slippery slope that delivered the murderers to their act and their victims to the grave. This is a story about obsession, twisted love, alcoholism, desperation, revenge cats. Excuse me? Oh, you're going to like the revenge cat. And... Of course, the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> Let's call it by its full name and give it the due it deserves. Oh, my God. So we're going to start by talking about a couple people who found themselves at the heart of this double homicide. D. Castile was born D. Hostetler on June 5th, 1938 in Tampa, Florida. And immediately there was drama. <laughs> With the baby? The baby was born into very dramatic circumstances. Okay. 
<laughs> like, why? She comes out like being a drama queen already? I'm pretty sure that's how I came out. <laughs> I was early. It was like five and a half weeks early of screaming. <laughs> She's like bossing people around the NICU. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep, I, I'm pretty sure I was one of those drama babies. I know you got them at home. You're listening. You're like, I know my baby's a drama baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, so poor Dee was born into very dramatic circumstances. Her father, Tom, had cheated on his wife, Ona, with Dee's biological mother, Peggy. And the resulting romp had produced this innocent baby girl. And Tom and Peggy were both alcoholics. So it's very likely that they were just completely soused when they got pregnant with her. Yeah. And then after Tom found out that Peggy was pregnant, he felt badly about the baby being born illegitimate because this is we're talking back in 1938. Yeah. So he divorced Ona to marry Peggy, but the couple didn't even make it to their first anniversary before Tom divorced Peggy and went back and remarried Ona. Oh, no. Yeah. So drunken drama and poor decisions would unfortunately set the tone for Dee's life. Dee herself would describe her young life as pretty ordinary, not abusive, but not exactly brimming with warmth. After her father left her mother, Peggy was diagnosed with tuberculosis and had to be admitted to a sanitarium by the time Dee was only a toddler. So she spent the next handful of years being raised by her maternal grandmother. And those were the happiest years of Dee's life. She loved her grandmother. However, when her father returned from World War II, she ended up moving in with him and her stepmother, Ona. Her memories of her father were fragmented. Some were good. Some were not great. He had a really bad temper. He was an alcoholic. And obviously his temper shortened when he was drinking. But she felt like in general, he was a pretty good dad. He did not regularly beat her like many of her friends' parents did. I mean, it was a low parenting bar back in the day. But many, many years later, when she was asked to reflect on exactly where her life had gone wrong, Dee would point to a moment that shattered her psyche when she was 14 years old. She had been a really skinny, pretty young girl. She's super skinny her whole life. And the boys had started coming by. And so one summer day in the sweating, sweltering, non-air-conditioned summer heat of Florida, Dee had let a boy in to chat while she did some chores. She was ironing some clothes. And she was wearing a halter top and shorts. Now, she didn't think anything of this because, A, she shouldn't have to. B, she was flat as a board, so she was not thinking that there was something sexual about the way she was dressed at all. and. See, I guess this boy was maybe interested in her, but he was definitely a friend and their conversation was completely innocent, totally platonic. And when he left, her father called her into the living room. And as soon as she walked in, he slapped her across the face, which was not like him. This was the first and last time that he did this to her. And it wasn't the slap that traumatized Dee. It was what he said that followed he said, look at what you're wearing, dressing like a damn slut for the boys. You're cheap as piss. Wow. And she later would say that you're cheap as piss would echo in her ears for decades to come. Parents have power. They have so much power to help instruct 
our children on how to feel about themselves. Yeah. So her self-esteem took a huge nosedive because her father was really important to her. Now I'm getting my information for today's episode, mostly from the book Without Mercy by Gary Provost, who was the one who wrote The Perfect Husband about the Lisa Petopoulos story. Mm -hmm. And I also got some details from Bonnie's blog of crime, which is a great resource if you're ever trying to figure out who's still in prison and where people are at. <laughs> you really liked his writing. We'll talk about it as it goes. I think that the writing was excellent once more. However, he's very sympathetic to D, And I don't know if he always should be. We'll see. And does he only cover Florida cases? I think I have a third book from him that is probably Florida, but I don't know. But a lot of journalists do that because they start by covering a case for a newspaper. So it's something that's local to them. So it wouldn't surprise me if he does only Florida. So we're back here in Florida. So despite this shaking of her confidence, Dee achieved great grades. She sang on the Glee Club. She was a cheerleader and she was one of the most popular girls in school. She even had a boy that she thought was a pretty respectable and handsome, steady boyfriend. Unfortunately, that respectable guy got Dee pregnant when she was 17 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the first thing her stepmother said when she told her was, your dad is going to kill you. I'm afraid he's going to literally kill you. That's really comforting for a 17-year-old girl. Yep. So when they broke the news to him, he was completely irate and he demanded that the boy who was also 17 or 18, they were similar aged, that he marry D. And the boy did agree. He wasn't crazy about the idea and neither was D, to be honest, but he said he was going to go through with it. But on the day of the ceremony, after all of their wedding planning, he didn't show up. He completely ghosted her. And instead, one of his friends came and said, not only was her boyfriend refusing to marry her and no longer wanted to date her, that if she tried to take him to court for support for the baby that was in her belly, then he and five other guys who were friends with this guy were going to testify to having slept with D, even though that was a lie, to invalidate her claim. Holy shit. That is diabolical. That's disgusting. Then they should all be responsible for child support collectively. Exactly. But this is, I think, if D was born in 1938, they were talking about the 50s. This is not a good time to be an unwed mother. It's not easy to be an unwed mother, no matter what era you're in. Yeah. But at least we've worked harder to remove the stigma around it. So you can imagine how heartbroken, shamed, shocked, devastated she was. And not that it matters because there's no bearing on whether you should get respect or not. She had been a virgin before this guy. This was the one and only guy she had slept with. So these accusations were terrible. Also, her high school kicked her out when they found out that she was pregnant. They asked her to leave. They told her she could no longer go to school. So was no one else at school having sex? Apparently, they just disappeared quietly when they got pregnant. Unreal. It's not like the first time you have sex even is like enjoyable. So like, it's not enjoyable. It's with some asshole who said that he's not going to marry you. And then he also, which I don't think being married at 17 is like the best idea either. But to have your friends go in your absence and threaten the mother of your child. 
it was also just a saving face in society thing. Like, I, yeah, I can say that I would 100% not enjoy being married at 17. And I don't know about the longevity of people who get married that young. But it was more that she was now completely abandoned socially. Yeah. yeah. So she did her best to pull herself up and out of depression. She took a shorthand class and she became an extremely competent secretary. She ended up giving birth to a little boy named Tommy after her father on her own 18th birthday. And she ended up giving Tommy to her parents to raise her father and stepmother. And Tommy grew up basically thinking that Dee was his much older sister for the most part. They did eventually tell him the truth. It wasn't some big, big secret. But as a kid growing up, he very much believed that his stepmother was his mother. Okay. So yes, she went and did this correspondence course. She became a very smart office manager, secretary. Her first job was working for a rascally, charming, and a little corrupt mayor who introduced 18-year-old Dee to a world of wealth, privilege, power, and heavy drinking. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she ended up getting a DUI at 19 years old, which he completely took care of like it hadn't happened. And I think that Dee was at this point learning that there was no consequences for her actions. She got pregnant and mom and dad are raising the baby. She got a DUI and the mayor is taking care of it for her. And she's also now fooling around with all these wealthy older men. She said that she thinks perhaps she was looking for a father figure because she was always attracted to men who are older and authority figures. And she's not really taking care of herself. She clearly has, we've talked about in past episodes, there's a genetic component to alcoholism and she clearly has that from both sides of her family. Yep. And she wasn't doing anything to guard against it. She didn't seem like very fully aware of that or how it could affect her life going forward. So she just started drinking. And when she was drinking, she wanted to be sexual. She wasn't being safe. She wasn't really taking care of herself. And she ended up getting pregnant again with this other rich guy. And she didn't even bother telling him because she was so scarred from her last experience. And she really didn't believe that this guy was going to marry her anyway. So she actually borrowed the money from her boss to get an abortion and they botched it. Oh my God. Yeah. It sounded dreadful, but she ended up needing surgery to save her life afterwards and then would in the future when she was ready to have a family have to go through many medical procedures and able to correct the damage and regain her fertility. Starting at 23 years old, she married a string of three different alcoholics. Gary Provost places a lot of the impetus behind Dee's decisions as the alcohol ruling her life. He contended that she chose the men that she ended up marrying, not only because, A, that's what was familiar to her. That's what her father was. She clearly wanted to win some father figure's approval. So it makes sense that she'd be attracted to men that have a similar issue. And of course, if you're an alcoholic, it's a lot easier to be married to a fellow alcoholic because no one is side-eyeing you drinking all the time. Yep. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. You guys can have fun. You can do it together. I mean... <laughs> not trying to glamorize this like oh it's such a good time but that's what she thought she thought that I don't have to explain my behavior to anyone and we can just keep the party going but the other edge of that sword is that 
it's very, very hard to build a very stable life when you have addiction issues that you don't contend with. Yes. And especially um, if you're going to have children with somebody and you both have addiction issues that you haven't worked through. Yeah, no, it's not good. Her first husband, Lester Wallace, was what author Gary Provost called a full moon alcoholic, saying that he would be totally sober for three weeks and then he would go on a week long binge. And that cycle seemed to just continue for their entire marriage. The couple stayed together for long enough to welcome baby Susan in June of 1966 when Dee was 28 years old. But she left, I think, shortly after Susan turned one when Lester, while he was drunk, threatened her with a gun. Oh, my God. Yeah, her old boss, the mayor, helped her get Lester arrested and also put her in a new job as a police dispatcher. She soon met another alcoholic named Charlie White at a party, and the couple got married and had two sons named Todd and Wyatt by the time Susan was six years old. So they were really good drinking buddies. They had met at a party, like I said. They got along. They enjoyed drinking together, but they didn't really have a lot of passion. And at that point, Dee thought, well, I'm going to focus on my career because I don't think I'm going to get the type of fulfillment I would like from my marriage. But I think maybe if I really go out for what I want in life and have a fulfilling career, then that'll be enough. So she decided to become a police officer. Cool. Yep. And so she passed all of her entrance exams with flying colors and Two weeks into the six-week training course, she was actually at the top of her class. She was testing through the roof. However, one week later, so this is now the midway point, they do a serious investigation and a pretty harsh evaluation to determine whether the candidate actually has the qualities of somebody who should become a law enforcement officer. So they dig into your personal life, what's going on with you psychological testing, the whole nine yards. And they found out that she was an alcoholic and they kicked her out of the program. Oh no. How did they find that out? I don't know if it was the way she answered questions or if they talked to people, they could have interviewed other people in her life, even just followed her after training course. Maybe she went to the bar. I don't know how they did it. But that was what they said on her paperwork about why they could not feel good about putting somebody in a position of power and giving them a service weapon if they could not be sure that she wasn't going to be drinking. Yeah, that's scary. Which is very scary and in a totally fair point. So she was pretty devastated about that. That was her goal in life. But this did not stop her from drinking. She had not hit rock bottom. Instead, she got a job as a bookkeeper at a gas company, and she was doing pretty okay until her husband, Charlie, suffered kidney failure that required surgery and extensive hospitalization. As a result of his illness and recovery, he was out of work for over a year. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is not good. Dee's salary alone was not nearly enough to pay the medical bills and support a family of five. So she began creatively borrowing from her company, AKA embezzling. Oh no. She was actually pretty smart and she was good at covering her tracks and making everything even out. So she wasn't caught for over a year. How? In which time she stole like $14,000, which I think given the time 
differential is more like $70,000. She was basically doing it in a way that she said she was forwarding herself paychecks. Okay. And she did this for a while. And at the beginning, she really was. She was just trying to make ends meet, keep the lights on. And so she said, I got to forward myself X amount until my paycheck comes in and then I will sign it over to you. And then she just borrowed more and more and more. She was getting away with it and no one was stopping her until they really took a close look and a forensic accountant came in. And that's when they realized that she had taken over $14,000 throughout that year of stealing. Okay. She's fired, of course. There was a criminal investigation. I think that she paid back some of the money eventually, or there was some sort of remittance planned that she had to sign on that she would do because she did avoid jail time. However, she was completely blackballed from any sort of white collar job or working with accounts or money. So instead, she got a job as a bartender and she worked during the day, a day shift, and now she could drink all day. Yeah. This was kind of where the drinking really took a hold. I mean, obviously, this has been a problem for her entire life. But this is now that she's working in the restaurant industry, the bar industry, it's a lot easier for her to have access to her drug of choice all day long. And eventually she divorced Charlie. She still let him live in the house as he was recovering from his illness. But she was just over it. She was over the whole relationship. And she ended up falling head over heels for yet another alcoholic, a guy named Cass, who is only identified as Cass in the book, which I'm guessing is where she got her last name, Castile. So it must have been a nickname. And they started off meeting in a bar, chatting, uh, both big drinkers. And then they went home together one night and it was on like Donkey Kong. She was so into this guy. She talks about it with Gary Provost. I mean, it is not head over heels. It's like head over puss here because girl was dickmatized. She was all about him. (sighs) So sober, their relationship was totally fine. Even her daughter, Susan, who is now a teenager and did not like Cass, said that when he was sober, he was totally fine. It was the problem when he was drinking. Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, total Jekyll and Hyde. Absolutely. And it was to the point where he was genuinely abusive towards Dee. And in every conceivable way, like emotionally, physically, sexually, if they were both drinking. And Dee would later say that she feels like the same type of passion that made their sex life so good also made their fighting life that much worse. They're both drunk and she would never back down. So even if he was beating her, she would still be coming at him and also hitting him and going in for more. So she kind of said that it was a powder keg of the two of them. She didn't want to villainize Cass, but her daughter, Susan, was a teenager and having to witness this. And she finally said, mom, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch him do this to you. So it's him or me. And she got married to Cass. Whoa. Instead, I can't imagine doing that for anyone. So Susan moved in with a family that she babysat for, but she never stopped loving her mother. And she never stopped having faith that her mother would eventually stop drinking and leave Cass and turn her life around. Dee's excessive drinking had caused her to be fired from nearly every restaurant in the Redlands homestead area, which I gather is like a suburban 
ish area bordering on rural outside of Miami. Mm -hmm. And so the only place that was left for her in the early 1980s was the Naraha International House of Pancakes, which was owned by a Mr. Art Venetia. Hmm. So Dee managed to get through her shift sober for a few months, but then began sneaking scotch in through an oversized oregano bottle and splashing it into her iced coffee throughout the day. Wait, what? Yeah, I had to read that part three times because I don't understand how you sneak booze into an oregano bottle. Gary Provost described that as an oversized oregano bottle that she kept in her purse. Like a shaker? Like a salt shaker? Like an oregano shaker? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe spices came in different containers in the 80s. I don't know, man. I'm just telling you what I read in Without Mercy by Gary Provost. Drinking on the job was the first mistake now 44-year-old D made at the IHOP. The second was befriending the deceitful 25-year-old general manager, James Allen Bryant. It was Allen, as he went by, who would eventually convince D to help arrange the murder of his older lover and IHOP franchise owner, Art Venetia. Dee was already a slave to her alcoholism and soon became addicted to the attention that the charming young Alan paid her. Though she would deny it, many sources claimed that Dee was in love with the younger man despite her overt knowledge of his sexuality. Her helplessness in saying no to Alan and booze would cause her to become a central figure in a plot that killed two entirely innocent people and ruined countless other lives. So let's go back and talk about the real Art Venetia. He was born on July 5th, 1940, to Spanish and Cuban parents in St. Petersburg, Florida. He was a quiet and musically inclined only child who grew into an intelligent, kind, and talented adult. Art received a degree in engineering from University of Miami, but he preferred to work in his side hustle of playing piano in gay bars and cocktail clubs. As a result, he never used his degree, which became a huge point of contention between him and his mother, Bessie. Disapproval of his sexuality and her constant efforts to fix him up with young women eventually caused a years-long rift between the mother and son. Not surprising. Not surprising. Come on. Come on. You cannot. She would do stuff like legit just send women to his house. Then they would think that they were having a date with him. And he'd be like, mom, you know, this isn't my style. Who's going to go on record and say she's not my type? Yeah. None of them are my type. No. So he had a little bit of a rift with her. She was a very critical woman, his mother. One of those old school generation that thought she was operating under the best for him. Like she was doing hurtful things that was like, no, it's just because I love you and I know better. And I know that really, if you just met the right woman, you'd be happy. Art remained mostly closeted for his entire life, which was not particularly unusual for the times. And also it seemed like was not unusual for Art's personality, which trended towards introverted and a desire for privacy about personal matters. He began to work in real estate and invested his profits in both stocks and greater real estate ventures until he found himself a decently well-off man. They said that basically he wasn't as rich as maybe some people in Palm Beach or really big high rollers in Miami, but he was pretty well-off. His hobbies included landscaping and playing and restoring old organs. Friends and colleagues at the South Florida Theater Organ Society, where he served as president, recall Art as a smart and gentlemanly person, 
but admitted that they never felt like they knew him completely. In 1975, when Art was 33 and on the rebound from the end of a long-term partnership, he met a troubled 18-year-old with good looks and charisma named James Allen Bryant. Uh-oh. Yeah, he's trouble. Also, that age difference I don't love just for how young James is. It's a hard one. I even feel like it's really hard until you get to be about like 21, 22, 23. But when you have such an age gap like that, in any case, though, it seemed like even though there was obviously some romantic and sexual connection, many of Art's inner circle friends said that he wanted to help James out because James, who we're going to call Alan because he goes by Alan, had an addiction to pills when he met Art. And how old was Art at the time? He was 33. Yeah, I mean, that's such a different social age gap, too, because technically Alan can't even drink legally. Yes. This is also 1975, so I don't remember exactly what the legal drinking laws were at the time. Because remember, for a little bit, it was 18 in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So maybe he could, but there's nothing wrong with this age gap in general when you're talking about two adults. It's just 18 is just on the precipice of really becoming an adult, even though you're legally adult. And at 33, I think Art already had a pretty settled life. He knew where he was, what he wanted to be. He was already well into his career and doing quite well. They were in different places. But his friend said that he thought that there was something inside of Alan that was promised that was going unexplored. And he wanted to help Alan get clean and make the best of his life. Now, Alan himself denied that he ever had any addiction issues. He said, I have never had a drug or alcohol problem. Oh, sure. Just like everybody else, I've smoked a reefer and I've done a little cocaine and I've taken a quaalude here or there, but I've never had a problem with drugs. Mm -hmm. Same, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Like, come on. I might. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Alan had been born... 15 years after Art in a small town in Virginia and described his upbringing with divorced parents and two older sisters as completely normal and pretty ordinary. He was a good-looking kid with angular features, a slim build, and wide eyes. Alan said he discovered his calling for working in restaurants after making sandwiches in his uncle's cafe as a teenager. It's unclear exactly how Art and Alan met, but it didn't take long for Art to invite the still teenage Alan to live in his beautiful Coconut Grove house with him. They kept the relationship mostly pretty quiet. They rarely socialized together, and Art's friends in the Oregon Society only recall meeting Alan a small handful of times of the many years that Art was a member and a president and dating Alan at the same time. During the early years, Art continued to invest in real estate while Alan worked in restaurants. Together, the men would attend AA meetings, but Alan said that this was something he did to support Art, who was a recovering alcoholic. Alan also encouraged Art to mend fences with his mother, Bessie, after his father had passed. The two had not spoken for five years at that point. Alan said, it was me that got the two of them back together. I grew up in a small town with a strong family, and it didn't seem right, a mother and a son not talking to each other. In 1981, Alan and Art decided that they wanted to avoid the high taxes in Coconut Grove and move to a more rural area where Art could build greenhouses and grow orchids and other indoor plants he could sell to a wholesaler. 
They found a perfect five acre lot in the Florida Redlands. It was lush, undeveloped, and completely private. Art and Allen spent the next couple of years clearing the land, building a guest house to live in while they designed the main house. They also built three greenhouses, a barn, and a garage. So they are making big plans. Well, Art was more than satisfied with a quiet life with his organ, his orchids, and his young lover, Alan was growing restless. There were spats and infidelity on Alan's part. Art's solution to keeping Alan happy, busy, and out of trouble was to buy him an IHOP franchise to run. Interesting theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some gals like diamonds, some like IHOP franchises. So <laughs> random. Pretty random. So the place was located only 10 minutes from the Redlands property, and Alan was very eager to be his own boss. So this was a win-win. So it's the restaurant industry. So you're trying to keep your young, hottie faithful by getting him a job in the restaurant industry. I mean, maybe he thought that working at the IHOP was somehow less sexy and cheaty than like a nightclub. <laughs> I mean, it is, but still. I don't know, because it was 24 hours, I'm pretty sure. And you can get in a lot of trouble yes. if <laughs> if a place is open 24 hours, no matter what. <laughs> Their friends and employees displayed contradictory feelings about Alan. He was most commonly described as a liar, even a pathological one. He was also described as selfish and demanding, but others reported finding him to be charming, capable, and funny. D. Castile was one of the employees who fell in love with Alan. She found herself attracted to his energy and also thought he was actually a very good worker. She said that if the kitchen was backed up, all he had to do was get behind the line and he'd get it straightened out in five minutes. So D. and Alan quickly formed a bond. And after nine months of working together, D.'s favorite thing had to be about Alan was that he overlooked her sneaky sips of scotch and she in turn acted as though she didn't see him helping himself to the cash in the cash register. And he liked having something to hold over her. He knew he could use it against her. She did become one of his closest confidants, if not the closest. They had one of those relationships that you sometimes form with coworkers, especially if you're in a bad job where you become almost codependent. <laughs> You know, like when you get too close to a coworker and it's totally platonic, but you just end up talking all the time about work constantly. And it's that whole like work wife, work husband nonsense. They got very close. So that's why I think it's kind of hard to describe the way Dee felt about Alan is because there was something more than just friendship but she was aware he was gay. So it, it didn't seem like she really believed that there was a romantic potential there. It was just this weird, loving, codependent thing. And Alan's favorite thing was to talk about his relationship. That's what he really did. He liked to dish a lot about what was going on with him and Art. And the truth was, was that Alan was bored of Art and he found him controlling all Art wanted was for Alan to stop cheating on him and settle down and be happy running the IHOP and with their life. But Alan wasn't happy with Art. And he actually had a new boyfriend he was cheating on Art with named Henry. And he really believed that Henry was the love of his life. I think that this was a lot because Alan had been so young when they met. And at this point, they had been together for about seven or eight years 
And they had grown into a couple that had toxic traits. Art was almost paternal towards him because of the whole, I want to help you. I'm going to help you get off drugs. I'm going to buy you a franchise. And at some point, Alan thought he was patronizing when he was just trying to be helpful. And Alan also wanted excitement and he wanted to run around with guys his own age that wanted to go out and party and not just be settled down landscaping and growing his orchids. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's right, Nat. Nothing wrong with that. So he'd fight with Art and leave him, but then he'd realize he couldn't support himself the way Art was supporting him. So then he'd go back to him and Art was madly in love with him. So he would welcome him back with open arms and the cycle would go on and on and on until it came to a head on June 13th, 1983, when Art discovered that Alan had stolen the IHOP's deposit to the bank. Wow. The whole thing, the whole 24 hours worth of money. When confronted, Alan attacked Art, began choking him to death, or trying to, rather, and Art did manage to fight him off and then called the police, but he was in really bad shape when the police arrived. He had red marks all around his neck, scratches on his face, and some bruising around his eyes. So this was a brutal fight. When the police came, Alan tried to kill himself by taking a bunch of pills, one of the responding firemen on the scene said to Gary Provost, Alan was crying. He had on a nice outfit, a nice shirt, nice slacks. He was pretty sharp looking. We figured these guys were lovers. The cops had to talk baby talk to Alan to get him to tell us what pills he had taken. Come on, Alan, they said. Now tell us what pills you took and things like that. Alan was real mad, real upset about the way things didn't turn out, about having all of the cops and firemen around. The thing that struck me, though, was that we're putting this guy, Alan, in the ambulance and his lover, Venetia, the guy Alan had just tried to kill, was all worried about him. Like, why are you taking him to the hospital? And I said, well, because he took a bunch of pills and we don't know what he took. And he was very concerned. He said, where will you take him? Will he be okay? It was clear that he really cared about Alan. After making sure that Alan was stable and going to be okay, Art finally realized he was pissed. Enough was finally enough. He stormed into the IHOP where he told Dee and another server that Alan had been stealing from the restaurant and that he was terminating their relationship and Alan's employment. He did need somebody to step up into the managerial role, so he was asking Dee to do that. Little did Art know that Dee was the last person he could trust as she had arranged for him to be killed only days before Art and Alan's terrible fight. She had arranged for Art to be killed? Yes, Art to be killed. She had done a deal. What? Surprise. This IHOP is so messy. Strawberry pancakes with a side of murder. Let's be honest. Sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Product designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from a strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products. Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. 
and nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll look forward to. Jesse, I was so excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also the air and the oil. Yeah, I ended up going back and getting a couple extra things too after my first order. I love that the company is exploring and innovating around toys and pleasure for us as individuals and for us as couples as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. Go to dameproducts.com slash lovemurder today for 15% off site-wide. That's code lovemurder to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. Alan had spent months grooming and conditioning Dee to feel sorry for him and want the best for him and maybe even intentionally wooed her a little bit into falling in love with him. So when Alan asked Dee if she knew anyone who would kill art for him, drunken Dee said, you know, I just might. Dee had a friend named Mike Irvine who worked as an attendant at a local gas station. Mike had told Dee repeatedly that he would kill her abusive husband Cass for her. Other option is just don't marry the abusive husband. <laughs> then you don't have to kill anyone. But basically he had seen D come to the gas station with like a bruise here or there. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to kill that motherfucker. You just tell me when I'll take care of him. So he repeatedly said things like that to D, which made her think, well, if he would kill my husband, maybe he'll kill Alan's, <laughs> I guess. My codependent buddy. Yes, my work husband's husband. So she later said that she told Alan that she would ask Mike, but she fully expected Mike to just laugh in her face and be like, of course I wasn't serious. I'm not going to kill anyone. But to her shock, Mike did not refuse. He quoted her $1,250 for the job. Random ass number. It's also not that much. Even in today's money, that's only $3,700. Yeah, but that's not a lot of money for a hitman. But maybe that's it because depends on this... the quality of the service. <laughs> that's exactly what I was getting to. <laughs> this guy was not a professional by any means. Why Mike agreed to this, we really have no idea. He was, by all accounts, a really nice guy with no criminal record. His ex-wife said that he was an excellent father and that his only sin was that he had cheated on her during their marriage. Mike was described as a simple, friendly guy who liked watching Westerns and football on TV. And so Gary Provost kind of tried to figure out what it could possibly be. They were like, was he really hard up for money? And they're like, no, he had a pretty decent job. He also, I think, might have sold a little weed on the side every once in a while. It just didn't seem like he was particularly hard up for money. And there was no big pressing thing going on in his life that would have required more money. And then people were like, well, maybe he was homophobic because he's killing a gay guy. And all of his friends says he wasn't. They said he was very like live and let live and believed in equality. So why would he agree to kill somebody for such a scant amount of money. Well, Gary Provost asked the following question in his book. He said, what the hell was Mike doing sneaking around in pancake houses, agreeing to murder people for what turned out to be relatively small change? Was he just acting out? 
some type of cowboy fantasy of being a big time criminal. Gary wrote, we have to assume that Mike Irvine was not exactly the man his friends described. He must have had a dark side that they had never seen. Either that or we were left with the much more disturbing conclusion that many of us, if handed the right script and pointed in the right direction, are capable of participating in bloody murder just for the thrill of it. I'd like to differ that most of the people that I surround myself with are not into murdering people just for fun. I'm pretty sure there's no script on earth somebody could give me. But I was like, ooh, right time, right place. Let's get to murdering. <laughs> like, I don't know about that one. It just had to be he was a worse person than people realized. Yeah. D gave Mike half the money up front and he told her he was going to pull a friend in to do the job with him. Alan needed to know the date of the execution so he could ensure that he would be out of town with an alibi. The date was set for June 11th or 12th, which is probably the reason Alan was so surprised on the 13th when Art discovered he had stolen the bank deposit and the ensuing fight that ended with Alan in the hospital and Art banning him from his heart and his IHOP. Mike and his friend, an ex-con Vietnam vet named Bill Rhodes, had actually gone over to the house, but in Bill's words, they had chicken shitted out. When Dee found out that Art was breaking up with Alan anyway, she naively assumed that the hit was off. After all, she believed the point of killing Art was to free Alan up to be with Henry. However, when Alan got out of the hospital, he was incensed that the hit hadn't gone forward and insisted that Dee set it up again. This time, Mike and Bill asked for $5,000, closer to fourteen dollars or $15,000 in today's money. Alan agreed to the price hike, and once more, Dee delivered the down payment, though she would later claim she still did not believe that it was actually going to happen. You're paying for a hit. Yeah. She says this over and over again, like, really, I just didn't even think that it was ever going to happen. What did you think was going to happen? So I just kept trying. I don't know if she thought that they were just going to rip him off and just take the money or what, but she maintains that she did not believe somewhere deep down that this was going to happen. She said that Mike used to wink at her. So he'd be like, okay, it's going down this weekend. Wink. And she took that wink to be a symbol of him not really planning to go through with it. Or That's what she said in her defense later on. Unfortunately for Art, he went back on his proclamation to kick Alan out of his life. And after a little bit of Alan's sweet talk, Alan was back in the house and reinstated as the manager of the IHOP. Alan moved back in only hours after he had arranged once more for his lover to die. The new murder date was set for the upcoming Saturday, June 18th, and Mike and Bill had one new demand. They insisted that Alan accompany them on the hit. If he didn't, the deal was canceled. Alan reluctantly agreed, and there is just so much stupidity here. I don't even know where to start because the whole point was to hire a hitman so he had an alibi, which you do not have if you decide to take a field trip with your paid assassin. Yeah. And no thinking in any part of this at all. Wait till I tell you what happens afterwards. I mean, the people who are doing this are beyond dumb. Just before midnight on the 18th, Alan met Mike and Bill in the IHOP parking lot and drove to Art's Redlands house. 
The result of this visit was that Art Venetia was brutally murdered. His throat was slit while he was in his own bed, and he died by bleeding out while choking on his own blood. Okay, Jessica. Jeez Louise. It's truly horrific. Now, all three men would have different versions of what actually happened that night. Alan would later try to say that Mike and Bill were total strangers who forced him into the car at knife point. Mm -hmm. And then they forced him to accompany them to Art's house where they murdered and robbed Art. He said that he wasn't present for the actual murder, but he didn't report it because the couple had just had a well-documented fight and he did not want to be implicated in the crime. Maybe his brain wasn't present. <laughs> Mike said that Alan was, of course, the architect of the murder plot and had even unlocked the door for them. But Mike said that his plan with Bill was never to actually murder Art, but just to rob Alan and Art. So they were going to keep the money once in the house. They were going to steal things and say, what are you going to do about it and take off? Wink, wink. But he said for some reason... Bill went crazy and went rogue and ended up killing Art all by himself. Always the wild card. Always the wild card. Now, Bill said that pretty much the same thing that Mike said. Look, the plan was always that we weren't going to kill the guy. We were going to go in and we were going to steal some stuff and we were going to take the money. But he said when he went upstairs to the bedroom to see what he could take from up there, Art attacked him in the dark. And while he was trying to fight him off in self-defense, he accidentally slashed his throat. Does it count as self-defense if you're in someone else's house? <laughs> I don't, that, I did not think. If you are in a man's bedroom with at a knife. two in the morning with a knife, I guess it was just after midnight. Just after midnight with a knife, I don't think it can count as self-defense. Sir, I don't think it, I don't think it can count. Don't think that applies. No. So obviously, these guys are all liars. The most reliable source of information seems to be Weirdly D, who actually wasn't there. But she said that she was working the like early, early morning shift at the IHOP. And Alan did return later. And he was pretty shaken up. She said that he said it was horrible. Bill really enjoyed his work. He did a nasty job on Art. They cut his throat. Mike held his arms and Bill did the slashing. So I'm inclined to believe that's probably the truest version. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it is really hard because there's just that physical assault that Alan did on Art, what, a week earlier? Yes. But are you really going to hire a hitman and then murder in front of them so you just basically paid for witnesses no i don't think so but i don't think that that makes him less guilty definitely not less guilty because he's still the person who set this entire thing into motion he's the employer yeah unbelievable him and d both yeah absolutely and they get very much implicated in this there is no easy way out of this situation for them they get themselves deeper and deeper and deeper in it too andy so the men had left Art just bleeding to death in the house. So Dee and Alan went back after her shift and found Art on the floor in his pajama pants, kind of half on, half off this bedspread that it appeared he had been clinging to, probably terrified for his life. Dee said that it was like a scene out of a horror movie. There was what seemed like gallons of blood on the floor. 
They had absolutely no plan whatsoever as how to conceal the crime. Eventually, they decided to put Art's body in a large wardrobe and carry it out to the garage. I think rather they used the bedspread to carry his body out to the garage where there was already an empty wardrobe. And then they locked him in the wardrobe while they figured out what they were going to do with his corpse permanently. To explain Art's absence, Alan was going to leave town and Dee was going to tell everyone that the couple had gone to North Carolina where Art owned property. After Alan came back, he would say that Art was looking to buy a restaurant there and eventually relocate. So the plan was to just say, he's gone, he's looking at a place, we don't know when he's coming back, and then, oh, he moved. Okay. That's the entire plan. And there was also some other stories he told people they had broken up and... Art had given the IHOP to him that he was in a drug and alcohol program. So no one could talk to him because he was inpatient. These were several of the stories that were shared about Art not being there. There was only one hitch, Alan said. I don't know what to do about Art's mother. Dee didn't really know at that point that Art had any living family at all and was shocked when Alan casually stated that 84-year-old Bessie Fisher lived on the property in a trailer only some 20 feet away from where Alan had stood by and watched her son get murdered. Oh, my God. So Dee claims that Alan then suggested that they also kill the elderly Mrs. Fisher to, quote, finish it. Dee was horrified at this point. She obviously had now realized what she had been a part of, what she had done to Art. And she said, absolutely, under no circumstances, are we killing an elderly woman? We can't do this. We have to figure something else out. And he's like, who's going to take care of her? What if she tells somebody? I don't really know what the options are here. And she said, look, I'm going to take over the IHOP. I will manage it while you're gone. I'll tell everyone you're in North Carolina. And I'll tell Bessie that too. I'll say that... You guys had to get out of town. She was slightly senile at this point. So she felt comfortable lying to her and saying, well, you don't remember. He said goodbye to you. He said he was going to yeah, North Carolina. Like and so fucked up to use that as like. So fucked up. Yeah. And she said that she was going to bring Bessie two meals a day from IHOP. It's like a guilt service. A guilt service is definitely what's going on here. Bessie had had a string of strokes and bad accidents at her home in St. Petersburg, which caused Art to take his mother in. They were still living in the guest house that they had built first while they were designing the main house. So there wasn't actually room for Bessie to live with them. So that's why she was living in a trailer on the property. She was described as slightly cantankerous. And like I said, she had been quite critical of art throughout his life. But old age and health issues had softened her rough edges. And eventually the mother and son had grown closer. Those who knew art said that he was a patient and loving son, even when Bessie could be difficult. It seems like after they reunited, her health had declined to a certain point where he felt patient and loving and took care of her despite the way she treated him in his youth. How can you not when you start to see that decline? Yeah, I think at that point you realize that they need you and it surpasses differences that you may have had. So Bessie spent her days in the small trailer watching TV and petting her large white cat whom she named Cat. 
<laughs> I love that. When Dee would visit with meals, she would show her photo albums and talk about her son and how much she loved him, which, of course, made Dee feel tremendously guilty. Of course, it should. It should. This arrangement went on for a few weeks until Dee began to worry for the old woman all alone on five rural acres and brought her concerns to Alan, who insisted that it was time to tie up loose ends. Wow. Dee did fight him on this, and the guilt began to eat away at her. She eventually confessed her role in Art's murder to her 17-year-old daughter, Susan. Oh, my God. Poor Susan. Way too heavy to get your 17-year-old child involved with, because now she's going to have guilt. Yeah, and she's also dealt with a lot of other shit, too. Like She's dealt with way too much in her life. So she told her about the whole situation. Susan even came out and fed Bessie with her. And she admitted that Alan was trying to get her to arrange for Bessie's death as well. Susan was naturally horrified by this, but she really did firmly believe that her mother did not think that the hit was going to go through. She felt like her mother was manipulated by Alan and he was the one who had gotten her into this terrible situation and she still loved her mom a lot. But she also said that she knew in her heart that her mother would have never done anything to hurt the frail 84-year-old Mrs. Fisher. But Susan was wrong. Dee would later explain her decision to go back to Mike and Bill and ask them to kill Bessie. <gasps> yeah, she does it. It's worse, too. Whoa. Yeah. She says later it was Alan, but she also tries to say that it was more compassionate that way because Mike had told her that Bill was trained in martial arts when he was in Vietnam and that he could painlessly kill somebody with a karate chop to their neck. Are you fucking serious? It's like, I almost have to laugh because it's so ridiculous. And it's so ridiculous that either he did tell her this and thought she'd believe it, or she's telling the media and the police this and thinking they're going to buy it. And that they're doing Bessie a service by offering this option to her yes. without her choice. Because she said that she was worried that she would break a hip or fall or wander out of the trailer and into the woods. So just put her down. So just, it's so much more humane to just euthanize her. To karate chop her in the neck. I mean, when you put it like that. That's literally what they're saying. I know. I know it's unbelievable. I, know. I can't get over it. I really can't. I'm really trying not to laugh because this is horrible. This is very, very horrible. It's somebody's life and it's somebody who's vulnerable's life. But dear Lord, a karate chop. What did the media say? Like, was he the karate chop killer? <laughs> no, because he, of course... Did not use that technique, which Dee said that she found out later and was upset about. What is the general IQ of these people? <laughs> no, Dee was described as having once been pretty intelligent, but, but you know, Susan. a lifetime of hard drinking will yeah, you know, no, kill a couple of brain cells. In reality, of course, it's much more likely that Dee had tired of caring for the old woman and was probably a little worried that she was getting upset about where her son was and why he wasn't calling her. They had um, unplugged the phone. This poor old woman is stuck in this trailer with her cat and her TV. She doesn't know where her son is. She's confused. And they had unplugged and removed her telephone. 
So, yeah, there was a story, too, that Gary Provost wrote about where he said, this is what Dee told me, of course, but there was also an occasion where she was at a wedding getting wasted and she realized she had to leave the wedding because she hadn't brought Bessie dinner and she was worried that she was going to get a DUI on her way to feed Mrs. Fisher. And I think she just decided it was no longer worth her while. No longer worth risking her quality of life. Yeah. I mean, I really do. I think that's probably where it came to. The prosecution also said that they believed that there was a financial motivation that Alan would split Art's estate or give her some sort of financial kickback if she helped to arrange all of these details. So this is the worst part for me. Dee told this vulnerable elderly woman whose son she helped kill that two repairmen were coming to look at the trailer roof to fix a leak. And she said this to her like, oh, you know that leak that's been coming? I want to get that fixed for you because you can't go through another winter having to deal with that or another rainy season. She said, oh, you're right. And she goes, okay, so these two guys are going to come over. You just make sure you let them in. Disgusting. I mean, that's the worst part of the whole thing. She can't pretend she didn't know what she was doing when she lied to this old woman to ensure that she would open the door to her murderers. On August 6th, seven weeks after Art's murder, Mike and Bill returned to the Redlands home and they killed Bessie Fisher. Again, the two men told conflicting stories of how the murder went down. Bill said that Mike asked him for help with a legit roofing job and only when he arrived at the property did he recognize it as Art Venetia's house. He said that he met Mrs. Fisher and got a ladder to inspect the trailer roof. And when he came back down and re-entered the trailer to talk to her, he discovered that Mike had strangled Bessie to death. He said that Mike later said, now we're even, in a reference to the fact that he had killed Art. But Bill maintained that it had been an accidental death. He had not meant to slit Art Venetia's throat. Doesn't it literally sound like a bunch of five-year-olds? It really does. I do appreciate in this book how Gary Provost like broke it down to this person says this, this person says this, this person says this, so I can present it to you in all of its ridiculousness. So Mike said the same but opposite. He said that Bill had asked him if he wanted to go on a legit roofing job. And again, that he was the one surprised when they pulled up to the Venetia place. And he was shocked when he later came across Bill strangling the old woman with a pair of pantyhose. He claimed that after the deed was done, Bill said, you didn't see anything. And that Bill drove him back to his truck. And then afterwards, Mike went to a bar and got blisteringly drunk to deal with what he had just seen. The authorities believe and D believes that it was likely... Mike, who may have murdered Bessie in this situation, they do think that in order to do another hit and split the proceeds 50-50, Bill was like, you got to pull your own weight. I did the last one. Now you have to do this one. Yeah, but he kind of like stumbled into the last one due to his (laughs) self-defense claim. His self-defense claim, yeah. we, We still don't really know who exactly did what 
but their best theory is that it was Mike with Mrs. Bessie Fisher. We do know that Alan and Dee were pissed at the outcome because apparently they had stipulated that the men were also supposed to bury Mrs. Fisher on the property. Not only had they just left her in the trailer, just slumped over, they had also robbed her of her expensive jewelry. When confronted about it, Bill and Mike denied the theft and Bill said, I don't ever plant them. I only kill them. Um, Classy. And also suggest maybe you've done this more than a couple of times. Yes, sir. You need to be incarcerated immediately. Indeed. Like, can we just skip forward to the part where he goes to jail for life? Thank you. And that's the episode in conclusion. So Dee at Allen's behest hired a man with a backhoe to come dig a deep hole on the property in which they first put Bessie's body and then they rented a forklift to lower the entire wardrobe coffin containing Art's body into the grave as well. So she had rented this forklift at the same time she had rented one of those little caterpillar like baby bulldozer things like the really like one person ones. <laughs> the fun size <laughs> bulldozer. <laughs> so they had rented that too, and they were trying to use that to fill the hole. But apparently, there was a ton, a ton of heavy coral rock in this dirt. So the little bobcat thing could not do it, it was not working. So they ended up putting a mattress and a box spring and a whole bunch of garbage on top of the bodies. And then they called the backhoe guy back and said, can you come back and fill in this hole? Dee made up a story. She said that they were going to be renting the house out and the people had kids and they didn't want the kids to fall in the garbage pit. The casual garbage pit that everyone has on their property. (laughs) Totally normal garbage pit. The landfill. It's like that guy in Australia we talked about who, update guys, just so you know, no one has ever claimed to have sent me that story. So I think it was a ghost to this day. But remember, they said that he just would bury stuff constantly in his yard. A red flag. Huge red flag. Except in his case, there were it was several red flags, little red flags all over the yard. So, so many. Gosh, this so many. This one's a big red flag. And this one's a big red flag. And also, they're involving a lot of people now. They've got two murders. We've got a couple incompetent henchmen. We've got now the backhoe guy. Like, a lot of people are getting involved in this. Now that Art and his poor mother were buried, Alan set about plundering all of Art's financial accounts and selling off everything he could. Alan did this by pretending to be Art, accessing his bank accounts, his stock portfolio, and Dee even helped him figure out how to take out a second mortgage on the house. So Alan did all of that, and he was still dipping into the IHOP register as if it was his own piggy bank. He bought himself a beautiful new home to share with his lover, spent thousands to decorate and furnish it, took all of his friends on lavish trips and fancy dinners, and did just piles of cocaine. Just a little bit here and there, though, right? What else are you going to do in South Florida when you've murdered your much older lover and his much, much older mother for money? It's the 80s. You're going to do a pile of cocaine, apparently. 
Oh my god. I mean, this is no judgment to normal people who didn't kill people and did piles of cocaine in the 80s. <laughs> I just want to make sure there's no parallels that we're drawing there because that's yeah, very Just fine. so you guys know, you're thinking, my parents were young in the 80s. They definitely didn't do cocaine. Your parents probably did cocaine. <laughs> oh my god. So what Dee was getting financially out of this situation is much less clear. Alan had completely stopped coming into the IHOP or working at all. So Dee had taken over as manager. The whole point of this, Dee later said, was she didn't believe that they were actually going to murder twice, which doesn't make sense. But also that she felt desperate not to lose this job because it was the only income producing job she's ever had where she could drink on the job and not get caught and not fear for losing. That's what I was going to say. That's it. So that was the big motivation. So she is murdering people straight up so she can drink at work. I guess that's it. That's the motivation. So I have not grappled with serious alcoholism. And I know that there's really bad rock bottoms, but I think this is an especially bad one. I think that this is below rock bottom when you are killing people to maintain your alcoholic lifestyle. I'd say that you that that's not a rock bottom because rock bottom isn't it when you realize that you could go down a slippery slope. I think the slippery slope's already been traveled down. Yeah, I mean, I think it's normally described as, let me look up like the actual definition of it as it refers to alcoholism. I feel like you've already done the worst thing that's humanly possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like an emotional breakdown somebody has that you have to do before you can get sober it's some people say this is not true though basically it's losing everything it means like if you've lost your marriage and your house and your job and the respect of your kids then you're finally at the worst and lowest place of your life to start rebuilding so does she have a come to jesus or no eventually but her come to jesus can't just be admitting that she was in cahoots because you've already like murdered people i just feel like Maybe the wake-up call should have been when she wasn't allowed to be a police officer, going back all that that way. or when someone's asking you to murder someone and you being like, oh, who am I hanging out with? (laughs) That could be a good idea. That could be a good, like... pro-love murder tip right here, guys. If your friends ask you to murder their lovers, they're not your real friends. And you need to reevaluate your life. Yeah, and maybe go to the police. (laughs) Woof. So going back to what Dee got out of this financially. So she took over running the IHOP, but Alan wasn't paying her a salary and she no longer made tips as a manager. So she was making less than she was making before this whole thing had started and before she murdered anyone. And so she started talking to Alan and being like, hey, you have to pay me regular. And he's like, well, what do you need money for? She's like, life, living, rent. And he's like, well, just take whatever you want out of the register whenever you want to. Who cares? And she's like, that's not how a business runs. Like, I was a bookkeeper. I've done this before. We have to keep this business afloat. And he's like, okay, fine. Well, if you won't just take money out of the register, then why don't you just move into Art's house? He's not using it. So she genuinely, to avoid paying rent, moved her three children into the murder house. And 17-year-old Susan knew what had happened there. And she said Susan was also interviewed for the book and said that she was worried about her mother's mental health at that point and her little brothers. 
So the younger guys, I think, were 13 and 14 or 13 and 15. So she was worried about them. By mid-September, Alan had already burned through every penny he had been able to steal from Art's accounts and began selling off Art's things with Dee's help. They sold off his beloved organ, his boats, and even the trailer that Bessie Fisher had been murdered in. It was clear that they would likely have to sell the property someday, which was probably a bad idea, not only because Dee doesn't have anywhere else to live, but because you buried bodies there. And if you sell that property, somebody else is going to move in and figure it out. Yeah. It's crazy. So Dee has not a lot going on for her at this point. It seems like, at least according to her, Alan just kept her in money enough to keep her drunk and pliant. And the stress and the guilt of the situation was keeping her drunk pretty much 24-7. As a result, Dee collapsed and had to be hospitalized for serious health problems due to alcoholism. Susan had taken a job at the IHOP to help her mother out and begged Alan to return to run the restaurant while Dee was in the hospital, but he refused. So 17-year-old Susan became the manager and was taking over this whole restaurant and very, very fed up with her mother's blind loyalty to this terrible man who, by the way, had completely set her up to take the fall. It was Dee who had arranged for the hitman. Dee who had paid them. Dee who had been the front woman at selling all of Art's belongings and had hired the backhoe guy and rented the forklift and the baby bobcat. Oh, my God. Yeah. There had even been a previous plan where Alan was going to shoot Art himself. And so he needed to buy a gun. And he convinced Dee to come with him to buy a gun. And then they get to the gun store. And he goes, oops, I forgot my wallet. Can you get this one? And she bought and registered a gun in her name and gave it to Alan. So Susan's like, how do you not see that this guy is setting you up? You've done everything. You even have the gun registered in your name. And so she said this to her while she was still in the hospital. And apparently Dee broke down and she just started crying and saying, Alan's all I have. He's all I have left. And Susan was like, what about me? What about my brothers? And she was like, no, I don't have you anymore. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve your love anymore. Yeah. Which is true. But you maybe should have thought of that before you arranged for two entirely innocent and good-hearted people to get murdered. And also, it's not really like her Dee's decision of whether she deserves the love. Like, those kids are going to give her love regardless. And so it was her responsibility to, like, stand up and deserve that from them because they're her kids. So they're going to always love her. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's that they were likely going to love her no matter what. So she needed to do something to earn it. Mm -hmm. And this was the opposite. When Dee recovered enough to be released, she returned to the murder house where she either suffered alcoholic delusions or she faced the wrath of a cat on a revenge mission. What? This is where the revenge cat comes in. Bessie Fisher's large white cat, Cat, had been finding her way into Art's house where Dee was living and would jump out and attack her when she least expected it. She said it would be something like Dee would come down, go to make herself a cup of coffee in the kitchen and not think this cat was even in the house and it would jump out from the top of the refrigerator and literally attack her. Okay, I'm obsessed. And this cat had not had a previous problem with Dee. She had been in the trailer bringing those meals and chatting with Bessie Fisher 
for seven weeks before Bessie's murder. And the cat had never attacked Dee until this point. No matter how many times Dee shooed the cat out of the house, the cat managed to get back in. And when Cat wasn't jumping out and terrifying Dee, she said she would just stare at her. The cat would just be staring at her like, I know what you did. Oh, my God. Dee came to believe that the cat was possessed by the spirit of Mrs. Fisher, who was getting her revenge. Despite her fear, she kept feeding the cat until Alan drove it far away to another neighborhood and let it out there. Rude. So rude, but I hope that the revenge cat found a lovely home and some nice people. So Dee said to Gary Provost, I couldn't let it starve. I wouldn't dream of not feeding it, and I certainly couldn't kill it. I could never physically hurt anything, but I did hate that cat. I think the cat was possessed by Mrs. Fisher. Either that or the cat was making a last stand on her behalf. I feel that. I never felt that way about anything else in my life. Susan also backed up her mother's story about the cat. Susan said that cat always found a way to get into the house, she said, and it would jump out at mom from the weirdest places. There was definitely something strange going on with that cat. So great. The Avenger cat. Yeah. So we've, we've now found the hero of this story. Well, Dee had bigger problems than a good kitty avenging its owner. The IHOP was a complete financial mess thanks to Alan's sticky fingers. And when you're part of a franchise like that, you have to pay corporate a certain amount of money to get to use the name and all the associated branding. The IHOP was now completely in debt and corporate was coming for their money. And they also wanted to know where the heck Art Venetia was. So Dee managed to fend them off for a little while. She had a sob story about how she also wanted to know where Art was and that Art was taking the money from the IHOP and not showing up and she didn't know where he was and she didn't know what to do. And she was just, you know, this simple employee that was just doing her best to keep the franchise afloat. But the people who operated it had run off on her. And she ended up paying some money, I think, out of her personal account and out of some money that Alan gave her. And that kind of bought them off for a little while. She eventually gave them that. But it didn't work forever because they obviously fell behind again. And there was one other thing that they found out. While investigating, they found out that Alan Bryant was the same person as a James Allen Bryant, who had apparently once when he was in a fight with Art, left the Naraha IHOP and gone to work for IHOP corporate where he very quickly stole $2,000 from a bank bag and peaced out. Wow. Yeah. So they're like, oh, great. Good. You know what? We were looking for Art Venetia and trying to figure out where our money is. We also found this guy that stole from us before. So we're going to get the police to come and arrest you. So right before Christmas 1983, they came to the IHOP and basically asked Dee where James was so that they could arrest him. And she said, if I get the money together, will you not arrest him? And what came to pass was there was a warrant out, but it was settled when Dee gave corporate $2,200 of her own money that she says Alan never repaid her. So in early 1984, corporate told Dee that she had to surrender the keys and the restaurant back to them or there would be criminal charges for herself as well. Dee surrendered the IHOP and she was now officially worse off 
Then before she murdered anyone, she had no job, certainly not a job that would let her drink all day, and basically about to have no place to live, too, because they're going to have to sell the house. In March of 1984, Dee and Alan sold the last of Art's estate, his literal estate, the Redlands property, to a landscaper named Richard Higgins. Which, by the way, Richard Higgins' girlfriend, Sandra, really did say that she believed there was some sort of ghostly presence in the house that she noticed several times. So Alan gave Dee just enough of the proceeds that she was able to put down a deposit on a small house in a bad section of town for her family. Richard would later say that in his eagerness to get such a great deal on the property, he likely had overlooked a couple red flags. The first of which being that... This five beautiful prime acres with several outbuildings was going for only $150,000. And the second being that Mr. Arthur Venetia could not supply his driver's license at the closing, saying that his jeans were too tight to wear a wallet. (laughs) He said, I just never, I never have my wallet on me because my jeans are so tight I can't fit my wallet in the back pocket oh my god there's so many other better excuses that was the one he gave now I guess that they had worked with this other attorney before maybe when they took their second mortgage out for whatever reason there's this other attorney recognized him and recognized Alan as Art Venetia so when the buyer's attorney was like hey, we're gonna need some ID to make sure you're the real homeowner. Apparently, they pulled this other lawyer in who was like, oh, no, no, that's Art Venetia, guys. Like, don't let this ruin your whole deal. That's definitely Art Venetia. And that's how he got away with selling the house. Wow. So the deal went through. Richard's new property would be subject to insane media attention and police investigation in only a few short weeks, which just goes to show you, Andrea... When something seems too good to be true, it usually is. Yeah, it always is. And now that was it for Dee and Alan. They had raided, looted, murdered, and stole until nothing was left. Dee was a total mess. She was, according to friends and family, living in the bottom of a bottle at this point and quite literally drinking herself to death. She was prone to fits of weeping and tremendous guilt punctuated by intense paranoia that Alan was going to decide that she too was a loose end. So Dee dictated a note to Susan in front of another friend that confessed to her part in both murders and told Susan that it was insurance. She was going to tell Alan that she had written this letter and that it was out there and that Susan knew where it was, and if anything happened to her, that Susan was going to get this letter to the authorities, and there was another witness who knew that she wasn't going to tell him who it was. So there was multiple letters that were going to find themselves at the police if he murdered her, is basically what she said her insurance policy was. But the thing is, that's weird, is that she chose to do it in front of this additional extra person who was completely taken aback and had absolutely no idea when she went over for coffee that day that her friend was going to admit to not one but two murders and eventually would come forward during a whole bunch of other stuff that was going on and say exactly what Dee had told her. So Gary Provost believes that maybe this was really like Dee's rock bottom. She was now paranoid. She was very physically sick. 
And maybe down somewhere deep, there was a survival part of her that realized she could get rid of the guilt in some ways by coming clean. But also, if she went to prison for a very long period of time, she'd be forced to get clean and it would ultimately save her life. So he thinks that maybe there was some inkling of her wanting to get caught at this point, some reptilian survival instinct inside of her that was like, the only way we get out of this is to have the worst thing happen. And that might actually be the thing that saves you. About nine months after Art Venetia disappeared, two different friends of Art's had already been kind of campaigning to figure out where he was. And they had been in touch with the police. One of his friends had gone down to North Carolina. They had checked all of the restaurant deed exchanges. They knew that he wasn't there. There was no way he was in North Carolina. I think I said down, but it's up because we're in Florida. Yeah, <laughs> it's just from where I am, it's down. <laughs> so this friend had already done some investigating and they realized that this whole thing stunk to high heaven. And then there was another group of friends, I think maybe associated with the Oregon Society, that were also alerting the police and trying to figure out what was going on with where Art was. And then eventually also, I think that that friend of D's came forward as well. In any case, they had a lot of people saying, go over to the property. We don't know where Art or his mother went. They're gone and dig around and figure out what is going on over there. So that was when they approached Richard Higgins, as I described in the opener, and lo and behold, they discovered the buried remnants of the buried remains of Art Phoenicia and Bessie Fisher. So they went and arrested Alan. They actually could not find Alan right at the beginning. He was working at a, like a hojo or something at that point as a server. And he wasn't there that day. So they had to go back and try to find him. When they did eventually arrest him, they found him naked in bed with three other naked men. So I can only imagine that that must have been a very memorable arrest. Uh, yeah. Could you imagine being the other dudes being like, yo, <laughs> we were just having a good time. <laughs> we're just having a good time. What the hell did you do? So then they also arrested D. So D was actually taken into custody before Alan because they had a trouble finding him for a little bit. And D eventually ended up confessing everything. This was because she was listening to the police radio while she was in the interview room and she had once been a police dispatcher. So she heard the address of the Redlands property over the police radio and she heard 245s or some sort of code that meant it was two people that were dead on arrival. And she was like, oh, shit, we're done. We're cooked. That means they found the bodies. And she was like, okay, I'm just going to tell you everything. She would later say that it was actually a huge relief to unburden herself. However, she was shocked when she was told that she was being charged with two counts of murder. One, she genuinely believed that because she had just set up the murders, that she was just the middleman that they were going to let her go with a slap on the wrist. She was like, yeah, I thought maybe I'd get larceny or accessory to murder, but I did not think, she did not personally believe that she was a murderer or was responsible for the murders. Yeah, you have to remember that she was let off of everything when she was little. Exactly. So she thinks that it's the same situation and it's not. 
It is not. We got to hold our kids accountable for their decisions. So they ended up rounding up Bill and Mike and arresting them as well. They were all, all four of them, charged with two counts of murder one. The police also located Bessie's stolen jewelry. Bill had given it to his girlfriend. Bill had also confessed the murders to his sister. So there's more people that know about this. And, of course, Dee had told Susan as well as that other friend who came forward. So there's a lot of evidence here. So much talking. So much talk. I mean, that's why you can't involve multiple people. There's four people involved in this murder plot. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So Susan would ultimately become the star witness against her mother. And this was extraordinarily difficult for the young woman. She really, really loved her mother, but she was really angry with her. She was angry for what she did to innocent people. She was angry on how she had ruined her and her brother's lives as well. Yeah. She was just really upset, and under stress, Susan had developed her own addiction to cocaine, and it was only after her mother went to prison that she was able to get clean and restart her life. She agonized over being forced to testify against Dee, but Dee, who had also gotten clean and found religion in prison, encouraged her to testify. She said, please don't run away. Don't make them come get you or hold you in contempt. You need to come and you need to tell the truth. I'm okay with whatever happens. And Susan's worst nightmare was putting her mother in the electric chair because she believed that her testimony, if she did get the death penalty, would kill her mother. And essentially then she would feel responsible and guilty for killing her mother. Yeah. Yeah, it's too much weight to give to that child. It's too much guilt for the rest of their lives. And it's Florida, and they were gunning for the electric chair for her. But Dee was pretty convinced that they weren't going to send her to the electric chair because she still felt like most people she believed would still see her as mostly just the middleman. She didn't have a motivation for the murders. It wasn't her lover. She did kind of indirectly benefit financially, but not like Alan did. And then she wasn't the one who actually killed anyone literally killed anyone so she was thinking there's no way they're going to give me this and if they give me life without the possibility of parole she said that's fine it's fine I'm doing fine in here and honestly if I was out there I probably would kill myself I would probably drink myself to death there was nothing to stop me so that was no sort of life that I had out there so Susan did end up working closely with the prosecutor who became kind of a mentor to her and eventually got her a job as a corrections officer and started her as a law. She started in law enforcement eventually, just like her mother had once dreamt of doing for herself. That makes me really happy. Yeah. And so she ended up getting married. She had two kids. I couldn't find any like information on where she is now. And usually if you can't find any information very easily about people, it's because they don't want to be found. So I don't do it then. <laughs> but a joint trial for all four of the murderers was held in June of 1987. Dee told her truth and admitted her part in the murders with her daughter testifying to what Dee had told her. The three other men denied their involvement and told the versions of their stories that I discussed earlier. 
in the end, it didn't matter who said what or where the blame was placed. All four defendants, Alan, D, Mike, and Bill, were convicted on two counts of murder one. In the sentencing phase, Susan begged the judge to go lenient on her mother. Alan had a couple of corrections officers speak on his behalf, saying that he was generally a hardworking guy at his prison job and a model inmate. And then Mike and Bill also had some loved ones speak to their better natures in hopes of avoiding the electric chair. Their efforts were for naught, though, because Bill and Mike were sentenced to death on September 15th, 1987. And the very next day, both Alan and Dee were also sentenced to death. Whoa. Heavy. Super heavy. Susan's worst fear had been confirmed, and she apparently ran from the courtroom in tears. But the judge made a valid point when he said, the court takes the position in these cases that it will be unconscionable for the court to sentence to death the two executioners in this case and not likewise sentence those whose conduct led to those executions by paying, hiring, and securing the deaths of the individuals involved. Multiple times, too. Luckily for Susan, though, and really D. Allen, Mike, and Bill, on March 29th, 1990, their convictions were overturned and they were eventually retried and resentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Elwa, baby. Yeah, I guess there was there was a couple different issues. One was that Dee's attorney said that she should have been tried separately. Well, that's what I was going to ask you when you first started talking about the trials. So they, I feel like they would all be kind of treated together, even though they all kind of did different things. Yes, it was totally prejudicial that she was like lumped in with them because it's like, yeah, they're all guilty versus if she had had her own trial, maybe the jury would have come to a different conclusion. There was also, I forget which one it was, but either Mike or Bill had a black defense attorney and apparently the prosecutor had struck every black person from the jury pool. Okay. So basically believing that if a black person was on the jury they would just vote for the client of the black attorney, apparently. Okay, that's some racist shit. And they were like, yeah, he of course deserves a new trial because that should not have been allowed to happen. Wow. Yep. So in any case, they were all LWAP, which I think is probably better in this situation. Probably was better for Dee to get clean and stay clean like she did in prison. Although very sad for her because obviously she only got to see her grandchildren when they came to visit. Yeah. But that's what you get when you murder. I know. <laughs> you, you forfeit uh, know. your right to see be a your human, grandchildren. Like a yeah. human. That should be a consequence of murder, obviously. Author Gary Provo said that she was actually one of the sweetest women he had ever met, which made him so interested in this case. It's just the complete ordinariness of the individuals involved. An alcoholic mother and IHOP waitress, the deceitful restaurant manager, a gas station attendant, and a Vietnam vet. You're forgetting someone. Or Gary's forgetting someone. The revenge cat? <laughs> Very important key no, I, element. I can't, I cannot forget the revenge cat. 
But yeah, he basically just said that this type of murder goes to show that it's not always the complete maniac who has been horrifically abused and was known to torture small animals while they were growing up. Sometimes it is just the person smiling as they pour your coffee at a pancake house. Okay, Mr. Provost giving me creepy lingerings. <laughs> Not sure if I like down with it. Thanks. As if I don't have enough to worry about, Gary. Well, the last one, the last one about the coffee and smiling, that was me. I did that one. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're torturing me with two things today. <laughs> yeah, he was just the one that pointed out the ordinariness. And now these people were totally people you'd meet all the time and you would never think twice. I was the one that made it extra creepy. I put that creepy sauce on top of the sundae. D died in prison in 2002 at the age of 64, and it does appear that her three accomplices are all still alive, though pretty darn old at this point. So the last update was in 2017, and they were all definitely still alive and still incarcerated at that point. And then I did not see that any of them had passed, so I believe they're still alive. Oh, man. Thanks, guys, for listening today. Hopefully we'll see some of you later on at our watch party and you can watch me torture Andy some more. Uh, but for now, in conclusion, I think that everyone should think twice before we get involved in our coworkers' drama. Ugh, seriously. You never know where it's going to lead. She's just like listening to him bitch about his relationship. And the next thing you know, she's setting up some hits. Yeah. Also, you should never cross a kitty. Ever. <laughs> Don't cross a revenge cat. They will face hug you like the guy from Alien <laughs> off of your refrigerator if you pull some shit. <laughs> that is such a good visual. Well, <laughs> don't you see how she cat was doing that though? She was uh -huh. like, yeah. she was going for it. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love, so your pet does not have to avenge your murder. Hey, love you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.